Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. On the Paracast this week, we have two guests. And first, we're going to introduce my old friend and dear friend, Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, because, of course, he's been a guest on the Paracast on several occasions. But we've decided to make him an unofficial or official, depending, or non-official, depending on how you wish to address it, regular guests. Every few weeks, he'll come on and talk about things. And it seems that here's the story. Jim and David Biedney, our own David Biedney, have been competing for a prize. Yeah, I wasn't even aware of that. <laughs> We're competing? Really? I think, yes, I, think so I think Jim wins. Jim wins. Yeah, I, I, well, I actually, if we're going to go into this, we're talking about the Zorgi Awards by uh, Paul Kimball. And, uh, you know, Kimball is a very interesting intellectual sort of fellow, and I wish I could meet him sometime. But anyway, he has these awards uh, in some of the categories are even strange, and, and I don't know how he chooses the people to put into the categories, but having done that, then he has supposedly legitimate voting on who wins. And I see, let me see this here, somewhere among my notes we have, Best UFO Paranormal Troublemaker. And I don't know how to define that category to begin with. And maybe one of you do. <laughs> but uh, we I have the winner. Means, I think it means making trouble. Yeah, but uh, that could be anybody. I mean, how did this become a uh, separate category? And how, who, who decided uh, who the candidates uh, should be? But anyway, I noticed that the winner is Alfred uh, Lemberg, uh, if that's correct. And then who is that guy? Who is that guy? Oh, he, he is an incoherent columnist for uh, UFO magazine. <laughs> I, I have, huh? Oh, oh, you're asking just, me, but you, you already know. Yeah, no, well, I, 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 think, I think it's called being facetious, Jim. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, well, good. You see, I, facetious I, is his middle name. I have tried to read his columns with very little success because I find a incoherent quality that, uh, that kind of throws me off. And, and I think the next one is also a columnist for UFO magazine, Jeremy Vaney or something? Vaney. Vaney is his name. Yeah, is he a columnist also? Actually, he uh, he is a columnist, and he's also uh a guy who's got a podcast and he's got a book and he's got a video, you know, he's a he's a UFO media guy. But actually Jeremy is a is a pretty okay guy. He's a it's a cool guy. Well, I don't know uh, very much about him. So those were the uh, first and second place winners under this very peculiar category and need I mention that the third place person was myself. Followed far behind with five votes less is David uh, Bidney? Uh, is that how we pronounce that? Uh, I, I tend to pronounce it fetal forts, but uh, Biedney will do. Yes, well, and so I had 72 votes, uh, David, That's and right. you had a mere 67. I think That's that right. tells us something. You're more but of a troublemaker than I am, Jim, and I'm willing to well, see uh, that. Well, but only, only slightly. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, a very strange thing that we find uh, with these uh, different categories. And then are you all aware of his new rating system for ufologists, which is a totally different thing? Uh, we have the, Looney t the UFO Looney Tunes classification system. Are you... Uh, are you 
you see, well, I'm more into a... the net now than, than you are. Because oh, wait, I... this is a Paul Kimball thing you're, you're saying? This, yeah, this yes, new, uh... this is another one of Paul Kimball's little problems here. Really? Uh, the UFO Looney Tunes classification system. And, uh, I kind of well, like that. That sounds pretty good, though. Yeah, well, it is. Now, of course, he doesn't define how you get into one of these uh, categories, but uh, uh, we assume that he's talking about the people who are uh, rather incoherent, which might get us right back to uh, Lindbergh. But uh, we have Porky Pig, Bugs Bunny, Yosemite uh, Sam, remember him in the old cartoons, oh, and Daffy Duck and the Tasmanian Devil. Yeah. Uh, those, but he only names one person in one of the categories. He doesn't say who belong in all the others. So uh, I suppose that will be revealed at a later date. Hey, it's all very interesting, sort of fun and games, the kind of thing that we at Saucer Smear rather enjoy. Well, now, wait a minute, Jim. I'm looking at the Zorgi Awards online, and I see yes. in best print publication... In fourth place, there's a publication called Saucer Schmeared. Yes, now, with an E.D., yes, yes. Yeah. I, wondered, I well, wondered about that. Mm. What's the, is that? Would that be your fine publication? Uh, I think it's a, <laughs> a slight error in spelling there, perhaps. But, well, do you think it's a slight error, or do you think that he preferred bagels? Well, I, How about Saucer Bagels instead of Saucer Schmeared? It could be either one, but let's think about it this way, folks. How do we pick out the items or the publications that are going to go in to this particular category, and how come, for instance, uh, the UFO Journal is not even listed, and uh, the International UFO Reporter is not mentioned? I mean, do we assume that they deserve no votes at all, or they were not included in the possibilities when people were voting? Do do you gentlemen uh, who know so much more about the intricacies of this unknown field of study, uh, can you explain any of that? Well, actually, Jim, given that uh, in the best podcast award, the top podcast uh, category, I mean, the Paracast was not even mentioned. Well, uh, I, I, I didn't ser- want to mention the fact terrible. that it wasn't mentioned. No, uh, but now that you've mentioned it, yeah. it's mentioned. In fact, there's a, there's a show that won that I just find perplexing. Uh, I don't know. I you know, part of it, I think you have to realize that uh, the people who tend to, I guess, vote on the Zori Awards are people who are obviously fans of Paul Kimball's blog. And actually, it's a good blog. I, I tend to read it, um, though it hasn't been as active lately. And from what I understand, uh, those are the people who basically not only vote, but also nominate the different mm. entries in each in each category. Oh, oh, is there a nomination process? Uh... Apparently, yes, there is. Well, that's not mentioned, you say. And, and, but again, I would wonder uh, why not even one person would nominate something like the UFO Journal, uh, the MUFON Journal, which uh, is not a magazine that I really greatly admire, but it should at least be listed as a possibility when you go to vote, don't you say? If his uh, fan base, if, if Kimball's readership and fan base is not aware of it, well, it's been around for 20, 30 how, years. How could uh, yeah. none of his people be aware of the MUFON Journal? Well, that, that pretty much then they hate it just like they hate us. 
they hate you and me, Jim, but less than perhaps other things. Because at least we made the lists. I mean, you know, as well, far as I'm saying, as some yeah. worthy people don't even get nominated, and if you're not on the list, nobody can vote for you. Yeah. Well, you know, at the same time, I think, gentlemen, we need to recognize that there are no cash prizes here, so it's not like it really matters. Okay, they're not. Oh, my God. Well, then why are we bothering with this? I, uh, I've got an idea, Jim. Can you tell us some of the things that you're preparing for the next issue of Saucer Smear? That might be a lot more fun. Oh, well, let's see. Yes, uh, we have, ah, uh, for the next issue, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. I'm, I'm still interested, uh, and we touched on this last time, and I'm interested in the question which I've raised with several people, and I've never gotten an answer that made much sense, but it is absolutely true that none of the top 100 UFO cases of all times as uh, listed by this gentleman in England whose name escapes me at the moment but not a single one of them is from the last 19 years or let's say 20 years and uh, uh, that's very strange and uh, going into it a little bit myself for instance uh, Rick Hilberg, you know who he is he's come out with a a new uh, monograph of some sort, uh, which just pertains to the year 1966, and uh, it's. Like Are you sure a, it's newer, not something that he did in 1967 that he reprinted? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I think he claims that he found some old clippings in his attic or something. Now, this is something new that he hasn't reprinted in this form again. But the point is, uh, again, I haven't done a mathematical study on this by any means, but as you read through it, you see a larger percentage of the cases that have detail. You see the size and shape of the craft and description of the structure of the craft with or without windows and descriptions of the lighting and detail because these craft, again, on the average, are closer to the observer, maybe a matter of a few yards or so, or 100 yards, 50 yards, whatever it may be. You get more cases with more detail, and that is not what you're getting now. I mean, that uh, Texas flap left me cold because even though there's something possible going on there, it could be anything. But when you see something so close up that you can uh, describe it in the detail that I just mentioned, then either you're crazy or you're making it up or you saw it. There's only three possibilities. And I think that the space people or whoever we're being blessed with have changed their tactics uh, to some degree. And they're not giving us the the real stuff that we can say, no, uh, you know, what is this? You can't deny that this has to be something uh, very, very strange. When things are just up in the sky, again, like the uh, thing at O'Hare Airport, that's a little better. But uh, it was so far away that you could still say, well, maybe it was something else. So I think there's a, a change uh, for the worse, uh, in a way, uh, in the last 20 years in the saucer field. And I find this very intriguing. That's something that I'm just interested in talking about. Well, I think that's certainly something that we want to explore yes. as we talk to people on the show. Have the UFOs become less compelling in terms of sightings? I don't know. I still think there are some pretty interesting cases out there, but they don't get the same publicity. I mean, it's like we've put our house of cards onto Roswell, for example. If Roswell doesn't make it, there's no UFO mystery. Okay. And yeah, well, there, 
that's an interesting point, uh, too, uh, Gene. I hope I'm speaking with Gene. Uh, I hope so, too. Yes, well, uh, I've always wondered about that. There are people, it's like an article in faith in a organized religion. There's no question about it. If you take away Roswell, what's left? That's what these people think. It's like if you say the Virgin Mary was not a virgin, uh, then that's the end of Christianity, and that's absurd. And so is the other statement about Roswell. How about if Roswell was a, a lot of nonsense, uh, misinterpreted, uh, ordinary event, uh, and other things are uh, interesting and true and worthy of study. Uh, it's a very peculiar point of view that people take, and I simply don't understand it. Uh, you notice that I bash Roswell at least once in every issue. And uh, incidentally, about the next issue, we have a rehash, uh, a very short rehash of the latest bashing of the uh, alien autopsy video. And you remember that, I'm sure, from about 1995. That was the thing done in England by uh, Ray Santilli, uh, the film of the actual autopsy of one of the Roswell aliens. And that that is so horribly fake, and it has been proven again and again to be fake. And now almost everybody involved with it has admitted that it's fake in this new thing that was in great detail on the net recently. And uh, yet, uh, I don't know if any people still believe in the alien autopsy video, but uh, hopefully they don't. Uh, I guess most of them say, well, even though the video was a fake, the uh, incident was still true, and that doesn't really work either. Hey, look, let me ask you a question here for those who are interested in getting a copy. Well, oh, more copies of oh, yeah. Saucer Smear Without the Bagel. Schmid, uh, Schmid, it's Schmid. Uh, yes, uh, well, that is available at P.O. Box 1709 in the sunny island of Key West, Florida. That's two words, Key West, Florida, 33041. And one more time, my friend. Uh, uh, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. And, Gene, I must tell you, I don't want to give uh, uh, these figures over the air, but I did not only get a, a reply, finally, from being on all these shows with you, but uh, this incident, uh, the reply, ended in a actual cash subscription to Saucer Smear. You owe us a commission. Uh, yes, well, I <laughs> thought I'd uh, send you maybe a 1% uh, commission or something, which would be a matter of pennies, but I could send them along if you so desire. Well, I'll tell you what, we have our other guests waiting in the wings. And well, yes, gonna... well, just get rid of them and let me talk uh, for the whole show. There's no problem there. I'll Who tell you... is the other guest? David? If you bash him before he comes on, then we're going to get even more mail. But, Jim, before we, I, I answer that question, you're down in Key West. I have, I have a question for you. Have you ever seen Stephen Greer down there in a bathing suit? Never. Keep your eyes open. I think you might you might need to look for him down there in a bathing suit. Does he walk in a bathing suit all the time or just in he's, the daytime? He's very buff. I take it that Stephen Greer is the man to hate at this particular point in time. No, I'm not. I'm not hating. I'm just. I'm just asking if you've seen him. You know, oiled up walking along the beach and. Uh, 
Well, I'm never on the beach, and I rarely go outdoors, so for me to see him would be very difficult. I'd, I'd rather see him back in, in the emergency room and, and and take pity on the people that have to come to him for uh, uh, medical help, but uh, oh, that's a whole other story, yes. Jim Mosley, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, I see that uh, the hook has come out uh, from behind the curtain here, and I guess I'll talk to you again soon, eh? Absolutely, sir. Thank you. All right. I'm hanging up. Bye-bye. I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues. Issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item Paracast Offer 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Brogno, uh, you're known as the go-to guy to get information about the apparently rather rich history of UFO sightings in the Hudson Valley. Uh, what got you interested specifically in this area that I think both you and I jointly call home? Yeah, well, you know, uh, how I got interested in the, how I found out about the UFO sightings, I think, is a, 
interesting story in itself. It's so dramatic. I was coming out of a diner for breakfast, and the mailman comes up to me and says, Phil, did you see the headlines? 100 CUFOs. So, uh, you know, I had to grab the paper, and I looked at it and read the paper with all these names in it, and I started calling the names, and every name I got, I got 10 more names. And all of a sudden, boy, I realized that uh, this was uh, a great number of sightings. Usually, you know, when when a great number of people see something they can't explain in the sky, it usually turns out to be very explained. But right. in this case, uh, you know, very credible people reporting encounters with an object the size of a football field. My gosh. I mean, you know, what can you say when you have these educated people talking to you and saying, passed over my car was the size of a football field but of course then the media picked up on it and and you know one thing led to another and all of a sudden i had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reports it was now, what pretty dramatic at the time what year are we talking about phil we're talking about 1983 19 march 24th 1983 is when i became aware of the sightings and uh, they had been going on since January of 1983, but they weren't really being publicized because uh, people who were seeing this UFO just weren't reporting it. Hmm. Now, as it turns out, this was a flap that apparently went on for quite a while, but I assume that uh, as you started doing research into this topic, what would you have found about UFO sightings that predate 83 in this area? Is this something that... You've got an isolated flap happening from 83 through the 90s, or are we talking about an area where there was generally a lot of UFO activity overall, historically? No, you have to, you know, you, know, you go back in time, and I've been researching and UFOs and paranormal phenomena in the area for, you know, since the 70s. But, you know, you want to do your research and go back in time, and you find out that, you know, there is an outbreak of UFOs in the area like every 15 years. Hmm. And, however, you know, the, the 1983, and I would say to 1987, that's where, you know, the most of the sightings were, that was like, you know, out of the ordinary of just a few reports or even a few dozen reports. I mean, it was like, you know, whatever, the bottle was building up and you were shaking the bottle and you opened up the top and there we go, boom. I mean, yeah. you know, so many people had sightings of this UFO. So, you know, police officers, pilots and so on, and the area was like in a, in a panic. They were in kind of like a UFO craze for a while. I mean, the sightings stretched, you know, from New Jersey all the way up to Massachusetts Massachusetts out to Connecticut and all the way to Pennsylvania. That's the that was the realm of the Hudson Valley UFO. It wasn't shy. It passed over major highways at rush hour. I mean, you know, it's like something that you know you would expect to see in a movie where dozens of cars just pulling off the sides of the highway on all the major roadways, Highway 84, the Taconic Parkway, the Sawmill River Parkway. And people getting out of their cars and looking up and seeing a silent object float over what they described the light span as the size of a football field as it passed over. They saw structure and gray structure underneath this particular object, and uh, the lights, you know, were multicolored, and um, most people reported no sound. Some people reported a slight humming sound that sounded like an electrical engine. But, you know, there were so many reports that you can actually document this stuff and plot it on a map and see such and such a witness 
saw it at 8.13 and another witness at 8.14, 8.15, starting around um, the town of Bedford, New York, and working its way up towards Putnam County, New York, and the towns of Brewster and Lake Carmel and Kent Cliffs, New York. So, you know, you had multiple sightings by witness who supported each each other witnesses report all of these people reporting the same thing so when I started hearing these reports and going to different people's homes and interviewing them everybody was telling me the same thing and drawing on paper almost exactly the same image so you have to realize that this is something you have to take into serious consideration that these were people who normally would not go to the police or call a radio station or talk to a darn UFO investigator unless they were sure that they saw something absolutely strange. And to this day, they're convinced that they saw something very strange. One individual who was an IBM executive said, you know, I don't want to hear any of this crap about swamp gas, blimps, or whatever. He says, this was a city in the sky. He said, and my thought at the time when it passed over that I should get home because something serious was going on. And this was a guy who could care less about UFOs, could care less about any sci-fi movies about alien invasions. But when he saw this thing, he was so convinced that this was not from this world, he wanted to get home to his family right away. This was the, the thought, the mentality, what was going on in people's minds when they saw this object. Something that was totally out of their control, something they had never seen before, and everybody was frightened by it. As a matter of fact, a number of local newspapers the next day after March 24, 1983, compared that night with the um, Orson Welles uh, broadcast, The War of the Worlds. Hmm. All the police stations, the switchboards were lit up with people reporting UFOs. Police officers were in their cars pursuing the object like a scene out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, radioing back, all excited that it's passing over police headquarters. And mm. no one seemed to have any answers at the time as to what these people saw. Now, just as, a, as an aside, uh, Phil, here's another data point for your data set. My lovely girlfriend, Dr. Sue, who has been on the show before, she is one of the people who saw this huge triangular object. In fact, she was on her way to her father's birthday party up in, um, I think it, I want to say it was uh, North Salem at the time. But uh, on April 14th, 1987, she saw at least a couple of these things. Um, she was on uh, 684, and in fact, she was just south of those IBM pyramids and Purdy's. Right. Well, it was, uh, right. it was between, exactly where they are. That's exactly where they are. Between like 9.30 and 10 p.m., she saw these things. She pulled over to the side of the road. She says that the um, at first there were no lights in them, and then she said that at, at some point uh, white lights came up on the edges, on sort of the leading edges of this thing. She said it was. Uh, they were going very, very slow. She watched them for about ten minutes, and uh, it's kind of interesting that she noted that um, I guess it was either that night or the next day that one of the FM stations. She remembers it as one hundred three point nine FM. Uh, they were sort of talking about these sightings in a, a very derogatory tone. You know, they were doing the uh, the little curtain of laughter thing, uh, making fun of this. But yet, like you just pointed out, you have people like IBM executives and police officers that were seeing this. Two questions for you, Phil. 
Question A, uh, did anybody see planes get scrambled and try to follow these things? And B, was there any unusual amount of activity with these things over the Indian Point nuclear power facility? Well, the answer to number one is that um, people had seen and reported um, squadrons of helicopters okay. in the area. But they seemed to also, they seemed to keep their distance from the object. In other words, they didn't approach it, and the object came here, they came in the area later, and uh, that was seen on, on multiple occasions, but not all of the sighting dates. Yes, there was activity over the Indian Point nuclear reactor, and um, on July 24, 1984, the object was seen over in Connecticut going over to Brewster, New York, and just heading west across Westchester, upper Westchester County. At that time, the object was videotaped by a, uh, a person in Brewster, who produced a pretty good video of the object, which is, I guess, considered um, one of the classic UFO videos of, of, you know, UFO history. Then the object headed towards Buchanan, New York, where the Indian Point complex is. Mm -hmm. Now, at that time, the security guards and the only reactor that was in operation at the time was reactor number three. That's a government facility. Okay, and the other reactors were not working at the time. That reactor actually supplies the New York City subways with power, and it also supplies a number of military installations, including an NSA tracking station up in Putnam County, New York, supplies them power. Hmm. These guards at the plant, these security officers, these are not hire cops. Okay, these are ex-military, many of them with special forces training, and some of them have been, you know, in the state police position. But they're right. all well-trained. They saw the lights approaching, and of course their immediate response was, this was a large aircraft at low altitude. My gosh, it's heading straight for us. What is it? They tried to get confirmation as to what it is. No air traffic was reported in the area. Westchester County Airport reported that they had something on radar, but it dropped below the radar net. We, we don't have it anymore. It disappeared. As the object approached, their immediate response was to defend the plant. Of course, the fear of that particular location is that somebody's going to get a large plane or something and head right into the reactor. So the airspace around Indian Point at certain altitudes is restricted. I mean, you can get shot down. They have right. a helicopter up at Camp Smith, a gunship helicopter, that's ready to shoot anything down that comes within a point, a, mm -hmm. a certain distance of it. Well, the, the UFO that night, silently, then it approached the plant. When they realized that it wasn't any conventional aircraft, the object came over reactor number three and just motionless above reactor number three, about 500, 600 feet in the air. Now, these particular police officers got under it, were watching it. They said it was triangular in shape. It was the size of at least two football fields. It had it was composed of some dark gray material underneath. It hovered above the reactor without sound. There were circular areas under it, and it stood there for like five minutes and just motionless. One officer pulled out his gun and looked up at the object and stared at it and decided to put the gun back in the holster. 
You know, there used to be only two ways neighbors to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Philip Ambrogno, who is a an expert on Hudson Valley UFO sightings. I guess we can say David is a resident of that particular area. So oh, yeah. David is, you know, we might as well admit that. And therefore, David may be the one who is causing the UFOs to appear. Mm, no. Nice try, though. At that point in time, my interest in this topic was, was very uh, quiet. I didn't really talk about this much, so... No, Gene, sorry, it wasn't me. Now, Philip, this is a kind of an, sort of a, here's a technical question for you. Let's talk about potential sources for this thing. What's the story as far as experimental aircraft facility in this area? Are there any? I know that we have Stewart Airport up in Newburgh, which has got, I believe, some military ties, as uh, I think the C-130s are constantly flying out of there. That's right. The C-5As um, also. Yeah. So... Is there a possibility, do you think? And not that I think this is actually even potentially the case, but is there a possibility that we're talking about some sort of a black budget program happening out of the area? Do you do you know of any such uh, secret uh, research, avionics things going on in the area? The only place where you could have any type of operation that would harbor such a large experimental aircraft would be Stewart Airfield. And there is, on Stewart Airfield, there was, you know, Stewart Airfield, part of it was was an old SAC base, Strategic mm. Air Command. Really? Okay. So, so they have those, they have, a, they have a section of Stewart which is petitioned off from the public airport and the National Guard. There's a sign there, if you go there down the road, this is a high security area. You pass by the sign, they'll say, you know, you could be arrested and so on and so on. Back there, there's an open field, there's enough space to land the C-5A. And they have those platforms that go on the ground. So this mm. was an old sack base during the Cold War. I went up there, poking my nose around, and I was immediately stopped by military police. And so I filed a Freedom of Information Act request back in the 1980s, and I filed with Naval Intelligence, I filed with a number of agencies, and I got the same response back. We cannot tell you what's going on at Stewart because it violates national security. So, so, you know, the thing is, is that you just go around in circles. What are you supposed to do? You know, you go up there, you can get arrested. People have seen a number of aircraft landing in that security area, but they were all small aircraft, a type of aircraft that, well, you know, we were spying on the area for a while, and 
the aircraft that we saw land there on numerous occasions, a number of them, were types of aircraft called O5As, which are very comparable to Cessnas and very quiet engines, and they've been known to be used by the CIA over in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam and Cambodian campaigns. So what exactly is going on there, I don't know. Whether or not the Hudson Valley UFO was some type of experimental aircraft, I can't say for sure. But if you have an experimental aircraft, why would you fly it over such a heavily populated area for everyone to see? Well, uh, the answer to that would be a part of a psyops operation. I mean, maybe what they were doing is trying to gauge how people would respond to such a thing. Not that I qualify this. Field. Not that I believe that's the case. I actually really don't. I've said it on the Paracast forums, the idea that, you know, there, there have been craft cited. For example, the Arizona, uh, the Phoenix, Arizona episode from 10 years ago, right. uh, where the earlier part of the evening you have this huge triangular craft that some of the witnesses described as being over a mile long. Now, you know, I made this point on the on, the, on our forums that, as far as I know, whether it be confidential, black budget, or otherwise, we just don't have anything that size in the air. We actually don't have anything that size in the water. You know, people. I, I think people don't clearly visualize the the length of a mile. You know, they kind no, of think it's of it as, as going. It's pretty big. It's pretty big. I mean, you, you can fit like four World Trade Center towers end to end uh, in a mile, and, and people don't necessarily realize that. So if you're, you know, you're talking about. Even a craft a thousand feet long—that's the size of a luxury cruise ship. As far as I know, we don't have anything in the air that size. We just don't—not a thousand feet long. So, if you're talking about this 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 triangular craft and it's a couple of football fields, I mean, that's that's—I don't know that we have anything in the air that size. It's so, been reported to be the size of an aircraft carrier. I no, mean, well. but you see, it was observed by people who are air traffic controllers driving home, people who are meteorologists, people who are commercial pilots who are driving home, live in Westchester, and they saw the object, and they basically reported the same type of statement to me. They said that I was amazed that something with that mass could move so slow in the air with no sound. You've got a presence of mass there, but where was the power to keep it up? Did people, as part of the reports, uh, the sightings of these these crafts, um, did people report animals making weird sounds either right before or right after this thing appeared? There have been reports of that also, yes, some type of animal reaction, dogs. Mm -hmm. Dogs were barking and howling before the UFO appeared. There were reports, but, you know, not that many of them because... There were so many people involved and so much confusion and so much, you know, panic, I would say, especially that March 24th night and actually March 17th, the week before that. And, um, you know, I think people were just more fascinated by what they were seeing in the sky. But I do have some confirmed reactions of dogs especially to the object, yeah. So the, another interesting thing about this object and some of the reports that I got is that when this object passed over the major highways, there were hundreds of people just lined up out of their cars looking at the thing, and people coming out of their homes as it just zigzagged across the highway into a neighborhood. And every once in a while, 
the object would project down a brilliant beam of light hmm. right to the ground and engulf a person or a car. Now, one of the fascinating things that turned up later, every one of the people who were engulfed with the light that I followed up on mm-hmm. later had a, another close encounter, a closer encounter with a UFO or some type of contact abduction experience. All right, so it's like they're being tagged. Yeah, something like that, or they're looking for a mark, being marked. I remember Bud Hopkins called me about, we were talking on the phone back in the 80s, and I said, Bud, you know, what, what do you, why do you think all of these UFOs are appearing in the area? This is before, you know, I had the rest of the data. And he says they're looking for people. You know, that may be. I don't know. Another thing about um, this particular UFO, going back a little bit, about the size of the object and so on, I remember being, um, we were investigating the sightings. Alan Hynek was up here, and um, Alan Hynek used to stay with me quite a bit up here when he used to come up here, and we used to do a lot of the research before he got ill. And we were over Peter Gersten's house, the you know the attorney who took the government to court to release the documents and so on. And we were talking about the possibility, he was talking about the possibility that this might be some type of experimental vehicle. And Al Heineck said, smoking his pipe said, but Peter, where do you put the thing in the daytime? It's so large <laughs> to hide it from people. I mean, it's not like you're out in Arizona or Nevada. You're in a very heavily populated area. There just isn't that much space to hide something the size of a couple of football fields. Well, long. actually, well, well, Peter Gersten has a purple wizard's tunic, and I think it would fit under there. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Phil Imbrogno, UFO investigator, joining us. He's an expert on the Hudson Valley sightings, and as you see, there's a lot of stuff going on. Okay, let's talk about his robe. No, not about his robe. No, let's talk about Peter Gersten. We don't want to do that. He's got a purple robe? Yeah, he hates our show, and, and he wants Gene dead, so we try not to talk about him. Oh, Actually, does. I think he wanted you dead, and me, he wanted to just crush me up, I think. I forget. No, no, he wanted you dead. Do you think he's listening to your show now? I couldn't care less. It doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah, it doesn't Hi, really Peter, matter. how are you doing out there? Apparently, he eats a lot of raw goat meat. They call it gushy, and that's what I heard on the web, and if it's on the web, it must be true. Getting back to UFOs and leaving lawyers behind, which is what we like to do. This is, of course, not the only area of activity in the Hudson Valley, right, Phil? I mean, there have been reports of quite a bit of activity. One of the places that really fascinates me 
is Pine Bush. I used to actually live up near Pine Bush. Could you tell us a little bit about what you know about the history of UFO sightings up in that region? Well, you know, it's all part of the Hudson Valley area. Mm-hmm. And um, Pine Bush, you know, we're talking about also triangular-shaped objects being spotted there, people having all of these encounters. But the difference is that is that what was happening in Pine Bush seemed to be more like electrical phenomenon, people reporting contact cases, encounters with aliens, and strange military appearances in the area. There was a meeting uh, in Pine Bush. All the residents, dozens, hundreds of residents showed up at this UFO meeting that I was invited to attend, and they all had stories about some type of sighting and encounter, close encounter with later aliens coming into your their homes and and I tell you it was so bizarre that um, you know I just left there scratching my head. I mean, the quality of I'm not, I'm not going to insult anybody, but the quality of the witnesses out there was not comparable to the witnesses in the Hudson Valley. Okay. People over there seem to, they go out at night and look for UFOs. They want to believe in UFOs. They want to believe that their area is very, very special. It has this connection with another world. They want to believe that even if they see airplanes in the sky or C-5As landing in the Stewart, they want to believe it's UFOs. And I was told, well, that's a, that says, that's an airplane. They says, well, you know, UFOs can appear like airplanes. I said, well, what's the difference of studying? But all in all... I think that the majority of witnesses over in Pine maybe wanted to believe too much. That's not to say that there wasn't a lot of things going on there. I think it got a little bit out of control and it kind of like spread among people who were went out looking for UFOs and actually videotaped and photographed planes going into uh, Stewart, the Stewart area. And I, I've seen a number of videos of pine bush UFOs, and, and to me, they look like aircraft coming in for a landing pattern at Stewart. But there are things also that are unexplainable that has happened out there. Very yeah, bizarre encounters. There's this whole thing about supposedly this, uh, this old Jewish cemetery, right. Route 52, where there was supposedly a bunch of activity. And, you know, as far as those meetings go, apparently those still happen every month, those meetings. I think it's the first Wednesday of the month. No, I'm not uh, invited anymore. Well, you have to just you have to be nice, Phil. If you're nice, they'll offer you coffee and cake. Uh, well, you know, you know, uh, I can sometimes be very critical about you know some of the sightings and encounters that people have. I think also people maybe want to believe so much. You know, I was down in Gulf Breeze investigating that also, and it was the same type of scenario. You know, people would line up at the docks at night and 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 look at satellites and plane and say, "There goes another one. Look, get it, get it." But, you know, I I talked to a number of people who had excellent encounters. But when you have UFOs appear in an area, you're going to get a lot of people going out there and trying to have encounters themselves. Right, sure. And when they don't have one, they will invent one to make it fantastic. So this is not to say that these encounters aren't happening. I'm saying that, you know, you know, people want something strange. They want to believe that there's something greater than they are to take them out of their troubled lives and so on and so on. Then again, there were people who claimed to be able to do all this stuff. They are in the center of UFO activity. The UFOs contact them regularly. They get attention to themselves. 
and right. um, sure. otherwise their lives would be pretty mundane. Like for example, when when my book Night Siege was published, that was a documentation of the Hudson Valley UFO, and it's probably one of the only books that doesn't say Mr. Carl M. of of so and so. It actually lists people's names and their professions, and it's a documented account of an incredible series of sightings that still remains unexplained. There was a book published also about Pine Bush, Silent Invasion, by Ellen right. Crystal. Ellen Crystal. The late Ellen Crystal, yeah. Right. She was a really nice person. But, you know, I met with Ellen a number of times, and, you know, I've known her for years and years and years and years, and she was a really good person, but I think also that, you know, she wanted to believe in too much that she was had a special connection with the, the UFO activity in the Hudson Valley and Pine Bush. And I used to argue with her about her photographs and saying, you know, this could be this, this could be that, this looks like a plane on your video. And she said to me that, oh, don't you know that, you know, UFOs can take the shapes of planes? And I said, yeah. well, then how do you determine what's the use of studying this if they have such abilities that we can't even perceive them properly? It's a huge logical paradox in the UFO. Well, it's a paradox to the fact that, you know, the UFO phenomena is that everybody has an opinion on it but everybody has an opinion according to how they want to perceive it. But I don't think that it's just the imaginations of, you know, a bored society. I believe people are having real encounters. That convinced me enough. And I also believe that UFOs themselves cannot be easily explained as somebody's spaceships from another world. I think the, the explanation, the UFO phenomena is very complex and it's a multifaceted phenomena that has maybe several causes. And um, I think what happens is that UFO researchers lock themselves in on one idea as to what UFOs represent. And when they try to get the data, some of them are looking for spaceships. Hey, if you've been listening to this show, it sounds like you've been listening to the Paracast, Bill. Because this is, this is exactly what we talk about. You're, you're right at home. You're amongst friends here. Um, because that's pretty much, I, I think, how Gene and I feel, even though Gene is uh, sometimes reticent to offer his opinion. Yes, I hide my opinions very well. They're very difficult to unearth, but sometimes on a cold night when the moon is full and I'm not howling, I oh, may good. I may indeed, shall we say, relinquish a few details. No, no. I mean, you know, it, it, I think what Phil is saying is exactly in line with what we talk about absolutely, here on the show. Absolutely. We're not trying to make this stuff fit in a, in a box, Phil. It, it's obviously there's something going on. You know, the real question is, what is it? And... It's funny how you brought up Ellen Crystal. I wanted to ask you about her because it, here's the thing. All right, so let's say that we come to the conclusion that some of the witnesses are a little questionable. All right. Meanwhile, like you said, at the same time, there's some amount of this stuff that's going on up there, that's going on in the Hudson Valley, that is legitimate. Right? I mean, you know, people are definitely seeing things. My girlfriend tells me she saw. Uh, a couple of these craft on uh, on a night in 1987. I have no reason not to believe her. 
you know, uh, d- did Ellen Crystal photograph truly anomalous objects? Honestly, I haven't seen the photos, so I, I'm I'm not willing to, to pass judgment on that. But at the same time, and and this is kind of going to branch us into a slightly different topic in a moment, but it's almost as if people are picking up on a thread that has been around for a long time. I mean, this whole area seems full of lots of anomalous activity, whether we're talking about UFOs or haunted structures. This uh, this area seems to have more than its share of these kinds of, of things. So, is it because this is one of the oldest settled areas in the United States? Does that have something to do with it? Is it because there are some weird energy ley lines going through this area that, that are of interest? Is it the population density of Manhattan? And the reason I ask that is that in the 90s, one of the biggest hotspots of UFO activity has been Mexico City, a place where the density of population is so high and the, the pollution is so rampant that you think that if you had some kind of an intelligent life studying us, that you would find them in places like this because they would be looking at extreme expressions of humanity. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I see where you're going with it. And, you know, and the Hudson Valley is, of course, very populated. And the thing is, is that, but you see, the Hudson Valley area has always been rich in folklore ever right. since colonial days. You have Rip Van Winkle, the Headless Horseman stories. The Native Americans here always talk about earth spirits who live in the area. And their descriptions of these earth spirits around certain areas sound a lot like a lot of things that are reported in the UFO phenomena that we're calling UFOs today. So, you know, you have haunted houses around here, poltergeist phenomena. My gosh, in Putnam County, you have spook light that's been photographed and seen by dozens and dozens of people. Spook light? Spook light, yeah. I mean, yeah, down in a place called Southeast New York, which is in Brewster, New York, there's old abandoned mines. Okay, mm-hmm. and these mines tunnel miles through the earth. The entire town of downtown Brewster is catacombed by underground passages. And when the mines were closed, shortly after a very severe cave-in, this spook light appeared. The legend says up there that the spook light represents the ghost of the miners whose bodies they never found. Hmm. But I have pictures of this spook light, and it's been photographed on numerous occasions and it looks like these globes you know that you know have been reported going in and out of ufo's and going in and out of structures in the hudson valley ufo people reported red globes blue globes of light coming out of the bottom of the giant triangular object and then shooting off into space and some coming in and going back in people reported lights like this globes of light the size of uh, softballs and basketballs following their cars even coming into their home through the glass window right through mm-hmm. the glass and then people reported seeing these other objects go back into the ufo one other thing not only did we be dealing with the giant triangular object but people also at the same time reported encounters with a smaller object that seemed to be about 75 to 100 feet across or in length, triangular, also in shape, a smaller version of the larger UFO. But 
we were talking about also the possibility that this area is some type of uh, portal. And I well, now you just you just brought up something, and I wanted to interrupt you just a second. John Keel, we all know John Keel. Yeah, he John talked Keel. of sure John Keel. Sure, he talked of window areas. Areas that seem to attract paranormal events, not just UFOs, but if you go to the areas where UFOs are seen frequently, you will find a whole range of unusual encounters of different types, ghostly encounters, whatever. Right. Strange creatures. And you're referring to the Hudson Valley area as a portal. Now, for those who, and we're going to get towards the end of the first hour here, but I wanted to maybe backtrack a little bit because maybe we're assuming too much in the part of our listenership because not everybody lives in the northeast is familiar with the hudson valley maybe briefly maybe we'll continue this in the second hour explain something about this area its proximity to new york city etc etc and its geology is also very absolutely absolutely so go ahead and you know give us a little bit of a background. Well, the Hudson Valley is located, of course, you know, it's about 25, 30, 30 miles northeast of New York City, north of New York City, one of the most heavily populated areas. And you really don't have to go to all, you know, to the pyramids of Giza, and, and you don't have to go to Egypt, you don't have to go to China to, or India to find a mystical place. It's, you know, right in the United States here, right in New York's backyard. And... This is an interesting area because, see, the Hudson Valley, the geology is fascinating because you have the Hudson River. On the, on the west side of the Hudson River, the geology is mostly slate and shales. However, on the, on the east side of the Hudson River, it's mostly granite, quartzite, and magnetite. Now, what happened very long time ago, 300 million years ago, Connecticut was where the proto-Atlantic Ocean is now. And uh, Connecticut actually slid into proto-America and the coastline of proto-America, New York, um, is actually um, was the coastline to the ocean at that time. And what happened is Connecticut came crashing into it uh, by, by plate tectonics over you know millions of years. And what happened, some of the, the the plate that was carrying this subducted, went under, melted the ground, and pushed up a very, very pure form of iron ore, which is magnetite. This magnetite rose up to the area, and also the rock melted on top. You have a layer of quartzite, and you have a layer of magnetite in the area. Now, here we have an area with intense magnetic anomalies. We register, they're registered, they're in the last geophysical survey, these enormous magnetic anomalies in New York. During the 17 and the 1800s, the entire area of the Hudson Valley, north of the, the northern part of the Hudson Valley, was mined for iron ore. And it was mined all the way up to 1899. The type of iron that came out of there was a very pure type of iron which made a very high-quality steel. It was magnetite. You go up in that area there, people feel the difference in the magnetic field. Animals react to it. You can go up with magnetometers, which we did, and you see enormous fluxes. You see deviations in the compass. Now, the connection is, of course, is that we have seen that UFO-like phenomena appears over areas of magnetic anomalies. And I'll tell you what, this, phenomena. Okay, and we'll get to that in part two. 
We're talking with Philip Imbrogno, and he is an investigator of the Hudson Valley phenomenon, or Hudson Valley phenomena, because it seems to be quite a few different types of events occurring there. We'll learn more on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Part two of the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Phil Ambrogno comes for the first visit to the PowerCast. We hope it won't be his last. We've been talking about the Hudson Valley UFO sightings and the other events that surround it. Now, before you got involved in researching this, Phil, what was your personal opinion about the origins of UFOs? Did you go in with the ETH crowd or what? Uh, you know, I really didn't think too much of of, of anybody's ideas actually when I started researching this about 1976 I was always interested in UFOs since the 60s you know but you know a little time with the military kind of like put a uh, put everything on back hold and um, so about 1975 I really started actively researching and um, at that time I only had a bachelor's degree you know I was like you know who's this guy and I don't know much of anything you know, but I had a scientific degree, and um, so I decided that, you know, gee, you know, I love astronomy and the idea of UFOs, if they could be extraterrestrial spaceships, how how, how incredibly exciting. I started, you know, getting cases and, and interviewing people who had encountered. I was pretty disappointed, you know, <laughs> about what people were seeing and what people were reporting and the witnesses, and, and most of them, I think, you know, could have been explained, but you see... I was only touching the tip of the iceberg. I didn't realize what lied ahead, you know, what lay ahead of my UFO investigation career. As time went on, I started getting more and more cases and more and more complex. And I said to myself, gee, you know, you know, this, this stuff cannot be ex- easily explained away. How do you explain, you know, somebody driving in a car and having a, an object, you know, block their path and and you know they they black out and you know wake up two hours later and so on and so on or they driving down a lonely road four people in a car and an object comes over their car and the car dies and it projects down a brilliant beam of light and engulfs them and they feel like it was being bathed in heat you know from it and and a number of cases i investigated were also um trace cases where there was residue on the ground. There was burns on the ground. There were a number of cases I had. People were burned. You know, they got a, like a sunburn. And I began to realize that, uh, you know, science cannot explain these things easily. And that, you know, it's not only the realm of the scientists. You know, my gosh, I mean, we're dealing with something that's out of human perception and understanding. But, you know, people still try to label it to feel comfortable with it. 
And my first impression is that UFOs are probably extraterrestrial. And as I began to look into more and more cases, I realized there was a paranormal connection. People who've had UFO encounters are having unusual paranormal experiences like uh, seeing apparitions, seeing figures floating through the room, strange balls of light, strange creatures, and so on. So I figured there might be there's a, a connection between UFOs and the paranormal. So when I talk about the UFO experience, as Alan Hynek used to say, the UFO experience, I talk about the UFO-paranormal experience. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it's related. You see, I have another book coming out in August, and probably it's going to be brutalized, you know, because it, it sort of contradicts the idea that, you know, we have to talk to these groups like MUFON and some of the other groups and say, hey, you know, don't be like a horse with visors on each side looking for spaceships from another world. There may be another explanation for all of this phenomena, something more exotic than spaceships from another world, even though... UF, some UFO sightings may indeed be alien visitations. So, like Einstein, and I'm not comparing myself with Einstein, who looked for a unified theory to tie all the forces in the universe together, for years I've been trying to look for a unified connection to tie UFOs and paranormal phenomena together because I believe they're related. Many UFO encounters almost sound like ghost stories also. I mean, you know, abduction cases and uh, UFO sightings themselves are, if you can think that UFO sightings are ordinary, but an ordinary UFO sighting is more than just an encounter with something that could be somebody else's spaceship or alien visitors. You have these objects, they fold in on each other, they disappear, reappear. They're doing things that contradict our understanding of the normal realm of physics in the universe well what you're what you're saying resonates phil of course you know there are many of our listeners that are probably thinking what i'm thinking right now which is well our understanding of physics and the nature of reality is rather how do we say this politely incomplete <laughs> so well, limited limited incomplete fueled by ego and uh, ridiculous vanity pretty much the equivalent of what an ant knows about the planet earth that it inhabits um meanwhile along these lines okay we're talking about what some people would call a unified theory for all of this stuff now i'm going to put on the skeptical hat for a moment and make a statement and i'm curious to know what your reaction to the statement's going to be again uh, this is not necessarily something i personally believe in but all right, so you have people that see UFOs, and now all of a sudden, all of this other paranormal activity seems to erupt around them. And uh, we know certain people who pretty much fit this mold, but what do you say to the person who contends that maybe we're looking at it from the wrong side, maybe a certain type of mental illness or mental predisposition or cultural indoctrination facilitates the appearance of these things in people's lives and maybe it can be described away by just a predisposition emotionally and intellectually what would you say to that well you know it's the same thing what i've said for years regarding people who have ufo encounters and then claim to have been have contact or abduction experiences did the sighting of the UFO create a fantasy of the abduction? You know, right. that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, 
also, but you see, is the UFO phenomenon nothing more than the result of, of an overstressed, bored society who want to fantasize that there is something greater out there than they are because people are losing faith in religion? You right. know, so it, right. it, it, even if that's the case, don't you think that researchers across the line would be interesting because this is a psychosis of the 20 and 21st century, but nobody seems to be interested. You have a UFO encounter. Most people are afraid to report it, not as much as they were 20 years ago, but still, people still will not report their paranormal experiences majority of people will not report their UFO encounters. And you're talking about, you know, people who are crazy, a psychosis. Let me tell you, I've encountered people who were very sincere that definitely, to me, had nothing to gain and they don't want any publicity about the encounters they've had and the experiences they had, and it changed their life completely. But then again, I've met people who are just claim to have the experiences but it seems more personal to them and they're really really unstable individuals and i've had a number of problems with them like gene yeah of course well everybody agrees that i'm very unstable but i've never really seen a ufo well i have by the way okay now that you raised the point tell us about the ufo that you saw Okay, well, I saw the Hudson Valley UFO, you know. Okay, and the story Usually next. UFO researchers do not see the UFO that they're researching, okay? Yeah, why does that's that happen? Like, yes, that I mean, happens too but, often. You know, when you're running all around Westchester and Putnam County for years around the Hudson Valley, I mean, you're bound to run into this thing sooner or later. The first time that I saw the Hudson Valley UFO, I was coming back with another fellow researcher. We were coming back from from the Indian Point area, where the where the nuclear reactor is, and uh, we had to meet the guards, uh, the the security people, at a secret place or to begin with, at a place called the Bypass Diner, and this is where we began to get the information about the sightings at the reactor complex. Now we finished our interviews about one o'clock in the morning. So 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving south on Route 9A. I used to live in Greenwich, Connecticut at the time. And it was about 1.30 in the morning going through the town of Ossining. And um, all of a sudden, right on the, up in the sky, we just cleared a number of buildings. There was this flashing lights going across. And I said, what the heck is that? And I said, what, does it, what is it, helicopters or planes? And the person I'm with slams on the brakes and he goes, that's it! So we stopped the car and got out and saw this enormous row of lights. The thing went over to the right of us, which was the um, west, and it sort of like turned on its side and just rolled across the sky like a Ferris wheel, and then poof, it went behind a number of trees and buildings where I couldn't see it anymore, and we tried to get clear of that, and it wasn't in the sky anymore. This was an object that was very large. There was no sound, but it was thin. You know, I would say that um, although it was very, very large, it wasn't very thick. There wasn't that much width to it. Um, how thick it was, I don't know, but it was a very large object in the sky. And that sighting was about 
oh, about 40 seconds long, 30 seconds long. Now, now you're and, saying this um, is spinning? But this is, you know, what I was hearing over and over again when talking to people, that the object would be there in the sky, and then poof, the lights would go out, and people would be looking for a silhouette or something, but all they see is stars. And then, poof, the lights come back on, and there's the object again. It seemed to have the ability to disappear and reappear, or maybe move dimensionally. So that was actually the first time that I saw this particular object. The second time was even more bizarre, because I was at the University of Bridgeport. I was teaching an astronomy class, so they asked me to do uh, local Connecticut television, which was broadcasted from the university, regarding UFOs. I said, fine, you know, after my class I went there, and we were filming about the Hudson Valley UFO. And with me, um, doing the show was a fellow investigator of mine who was a police officer. We finished doing the show, and, you know, we're walking out to our car in the parking lot, and it was pretty cold. It was like December. And up in the sky over Bridgeport, this enormous object that was incredibly well lit up with all white lights. And I came out and looked at it, and I says, right from George, I said, this can't be happening. We were just doing a show on this darn thing. This is an elliptical object, and it was obviously attached to some sort of dark structure because it was blocking out the stars. It was a crisp, clear night. That object was seen all over Bridgeport, all over Bristol, Connecticut, all the way up to Hartford and back down to Fairfield. I got so many reports of this object that night that... You know, I was invited to go on the local news, Channel 8 News, and, and it was just amazing that people were watching this thing, and everybody was just in awe of the size of this thing and that it was silent. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today.
You know what? I'm in awe of this. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Philip Imbrogno is here. He's talking about the Hudson Valley cases, and we're talking now about the sheer size of this particular craft. Go ahead. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, calls were going into the radio station down in Fairfield, Connecticut. You know, officers had encounters with it. It was seen by a pilot in the air, and he said it was an enormous object, that he was afraid to get close to it. And um, so after the sightings, I was invited um, a radio station in Bridgeport to talk about the sightings from the previous night. It was a very popular evening talk show in Bridgeport, Connecticut that had, you know, good range. And and so people started calling in and they were saying, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm such and such and such. I'm a pilot. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a you know, scientist. People were calling in and giving these excellent credentials and saying, I saw this object. It was not anything I've ever seen in my life before. And I was saying to them, I mean, I saw it too. And I agree with you that you know, I try to sit there and try to identify the darn thing, but something that, you know, you could not identify. So the, the host of the show was kind of like an unbeliever, but he was pretty impressed that so many people were calling in. The switchboards were lit up. The phones were lit up um, for the two-hour show that we did. Finally, in the last hour, in the last half hour of the show, someone calls in and they say that, uh, oh, you people who saw that UFO, it wasn't a UFO. This is one person. He said, um, I saw it, it passed over my house, and it passed over my car, and it was a blimp. So, <laughs> so forget this. So the host asked him, sir, uh, what do you do for a living? He says, I deliver fried chicken for a living. I dress up in a chicken suit, and he starts clucking like a chicken on the air. So the host goes, the radio show goes, listen, you people out there, we have a confirmed report. What you saw was not a UFO. It was a blimp. One person dressed up in a chicken suit calls up and clucks like a chicken and says he saw a blimp. And this host of the show discounted all the other calls before that. Terrible. We're talking about, talk about hundreds of people or dozens of people can have an incredible sighting of a UFO, but it only takes one person to come forward and say, you didn't see that, you saw something else, and it like the people who yeah, haven't just, seen the object just, will say, oh, yeah, that's what they saw. But we but see I that, that all was a the pretty time. interesting thing of human behavior yeah. that night. Well, but we see that all the time with this topic, Phil. I mean, basically... The burden uh, of proof. Well, it's just, even if you have proof, I mean, you can come forward with the most compelling photographic evidence, the most compelling witness testimony, a line of military people like what Leslie Keene and, and James Fox did last November in Washington. You, you, you parade people who are obviously not making stuff up, you know, and, and the, the media just doesn't care, just doesn't want to know at this point. So, of course, you have people screaming conspiracy. Well, gee, the media's trying to cover things up. Um, I don't know that I even buy into that. I think it just comes down to the media treating this topic, like any other topic, as entertainment. Look, a majority of people who probably listen to shows like ours and other shows in this, uh, in this genre, they're doing it for entertainment. This is like an extension of the X-Files for them. 
And and that's the often the way that it's sort of it, it's framed. You know, you have the spooky music. Like, look at the even at the beginning of the Paracast, we have the sp- spooky music that I did for the show. And we've had people write in and go, "Why do you do this? Why do you have that spooky music? It kind of sets a a wrong tone." It's like, well, what are you going to have? Opera music? Listen, you have to always frame something in a context. And unfortunately, with this with these topics, it's not just UFOs. All the paranormal stuff. It's either seen as a way to create entertainment, or it's seen as what you said before, Phil, which is a, a replacement for religious belief systems. People don't buy into religions anymore, so now they're looking to this as religion, and so much of what goes on in the field are people defending their religious beliefs. Well, sort of a pseudo sort of a religion has developed around the UFO phenomena, yeah. and that's evident in people who claim to be channeling extraterrestrials. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, that has emerged, and I compare it to the great uh, spiritualism of the 1930s when people were going to mediums. Now people are going to people who channel extraterrestrials. And it's true, you know. Um, then, you know, it's also true with a, with a great number here, I'm going to put myself on the line again, with people who investigate UFOs. You see, to them, many of them, it's it's an interest it's something that's really kind of real but not real. Right. They investigate on the weekends as a, you know, sort of a thrill and they, they get interested in it. But you see, unless you have a sighting of one of these objects and you realize that it is something very real, it no longer becomes a game of interest. It becomes a reality. It's not like going bungee jumping on the weekends or playing basketball. To them, it's just a hobby, or they play poker or something, and they lose $20. That's the hobby. But soon, they get the impression or they get the evidence that shows this is something that's not a hobby. In the same sense, this is something that's real. It could be dangerous, but certainly significant. It's true, you know, and... um when you finally realize of the reality of the UFO phenomena, then you look at it at a different light, a more serious light. And, you know, there are quite a few people out there who belong to, you know, local UFO groups, and UFOs seem to be making a big comeback again. It was like, you know, uh, two, three years ago, you know, the media wouldn't touch UFOs. I mean, it was like a dead subject. Publishers wouldn't touch UFOs. Now it seems to be once again coming back again. It comes in cycles. Mm. So you have quite a few people out there who are like all of a sudden becoming UFO experts and going out there and investigating sightings. You know, in the old days, we used to, it used to be thought that people who saw UFOs were crazy. You know, but today I believe it's the people who are investigating UFOs might be crazy. <laughs> you know? Believe me, I've come right, a few right. of them. All right, now you know I'm what I mean. Put you on the spot. Here's the here 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 we go, Phil. It's the worldwide wrestling portion of the show. I'm Vince McMahon. All right, so your least favorite investigator slash researcher in the UFO field, and why? My least mm. favorite. Oh yeah. What are you talking about? Well, who, who out there? You just brought up people who are doing research, who are you know just. Oh just yeah, you know, off. there's there's quite a few of them out. There. Well, who's your least? Well, favorite? I'm not going to say any of them, you know, in public. You know, you know. Let me tell you, a few years, about ten years ago, when the first edition of my book Night Siege, the Hudson Valley UFO sightings, was published, 
you know, I got so many letters from people who were UFO investigators, you know, who have never heard of that want to get into it and so on. And, you know, and some of them sounded sincere. And I met with some of them also, but they were really wackos. So let me tell you, what happened is that one particular individual would not give up. He kept on calling me. He kept on writing me letters. And he, finally, he, the letters started to change. And he was saying that he was getting messages from the aliens to silence me. So I figured, mm -hmm. you know, what the heck is this and so on and so on. That's not good. I didn't know that the guy was following me. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. One day... He mails me a picture of my school and me going in with a note saying, I know exactly where you Jeez. go. Uh, creepy. This has happened a couple of times to me. A stalker? And UFO stalker. Oh, oh boy, that's bad. You know, some of them, they could be male or female, but, you know, it doesn't matter. You get them once in a while. <laughs> they used to be called UFO groupies in the old days, you know. <laughs> but, Gee, I never had any of those. Well, I've had a few. I've had a few. You know, when I go to UFO, when I'm invited to UFO conferences, I never wear a name tag. Yep. That sounds like me. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. You know why? Because, you know, there are some people actually out there that um, that think they have to silence me for some reason or another. Because, um, and I don't know why, I mean, I'm not giving any revelations of you know, or what UFOs are, or whatever they are, or I don't insult any aliens out there. But, you know, you never know who's reading your books. And I've had, let's, you know, I've had Night Siege, Contact of the Fifth Kind, Celtic Mysteries, Doorways to Another Dimension. And I have a new book coming out in August. And, um, you know, when you never know who's reading that material. And although the majority of people reading it are interested, they're stable individuals, there is a lunatic fringe out there that reads that material that starts identifying with it, and they want to approach you in some way or another. Absolutely. Uh, I, can, I can confirm that in my small amount of dabbling at UFO events, I have, I have met those people, Phil, and, and it's a little uncomfortable. It's a well, little strange. I'll tell you a funny story. I was giving a, a UFO lecture um, out in Staten Island, New York, a number of years ago. And um, I would see the same person in the audience sitting up in front. I saw him in a number of my lectures before there. Big guy, and uh, he had two people with him. And every time I would talk, he would nod his head and smile and look at me like he was agreeing with everything I said. So after I saw him at the third lecture, the final lecture in Staten Island, I saw the two previous lectures I gave. It was all about the Hudson Valley UFO. At the end of my talk, at this particular time, he got out of, out of his seat and started approaching me. And at this point, you know, he's got a blank look on his face, and he's getting, he's getting very close. And I'm getting a little worried. And he goes, Phil, I have to talk to you. Boy. Alone. I can't really talk alone. He said, I said, talk to me right now. And he said, I want to thank you. And Reverend Sun Young Moon wants to thank you. Oh, jeez. Now, get this. This is where the time where they got Sun Young Moon for tax evasion, and he was in Danbury mm -hmm. Prison. Yep. The Moonies associated my reporting of the Hudson Valley UFO as a <laughs> sign that angels 
were going over the prison because they were spotted in Danbury flying over the prison and they mentioned the case and they were protecting Sun Young Moon. And I said to this individual, I said, I said, I don't think that's the case. I don't think he has any connection with these UFOs. And, you know, the UFOs were spotted in the area. He goes, no, no, Phil, don't you know that they were angels protecting Sun Young Moon? I said, <laughs> they were objects. People saw them all over the place, not only Danbury Prison. And he said to me, he grabbed him by the shoulders, and he looks at me straight in the eyes, and he goes, don't you know that Sun Young Moon is God? And I said, excuse me, how can he be God? He doesn't even speak English. He's in jail. <laughs> We're listening to Tulsa. you know what? With, you're, and and then I was getting calls. Mr. Imbrogno, I am, I am George Snorri, and this is Toast to Toast. And I told you, Jeremy, they were angels. It and before angels. we continue with this... It was angels. Be quiet, Jew. It was angels. <laughs> This is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net ray perkins a reclusive veteran burned out from the gulf war lives tortured by relentless perplexing nightmares nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world a woman not yet born calling across centuries to him then a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg oh, and David Biedney, oh. and we have Phil Imbrogno, and we've been talking about the Hudson Valley UFO cases, oh. about the UFO stalker, who apparently was associated somehow with Reverend Sung Young Moon. I'm sorry, Phil. I didn't mean it to freak out. Anymore. Or, or maybe he was a moonbeam. I forget. I know. I heard angels. <laughs> I heard Reverend Moon, and I just lost it, and George Snorri took over my soul for about three seconds. Channel yeah, well, George Snorri. That's yeah, how. Sorry, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, but, the stranger things have happened to me. Uh, and to me as well. So here's the thing. We haven't talked about, and, and uh, I want to make sure we bring this up, Phil. We haven't talked about the work that you've done surrounding these bizarre stone cave structure things, these weird things in upstate New York that, I have to tell you, uh, uh, last year, our buddy Jeremy Viney had said, oh, you got to come up with me. I'm going to upstate New York to meet with this guy, Phil. He's going to take us on a tour of these weird structures. And make a long story short, we ended up running some bad traffic, and I was going to bring my girlfriend up and a couple other friends of mine. Yeah, we were on the way up, and we got derailed, and it really made me very unhappy that we didn't get to see you because I, I wanted to go and check out some of these bizarre structures. So could you, set, could you set the stage for our audience and tell us a little bit about these these things? What are they? Okay, well, they're obviously they're built by, you know, people, and uh, they've been in the area for a long time. They go back in legend, so all the way back to Native Americans. And um, the only other place in the world that you find these structures are in Ireland and Scotland and parts of, you know, uh, uh, northern Europe. And uh, they're associated with the pre-Celts and the Celts and structure that they're built. There's enormous stone structures, chambers with rock built out of rock, and the rocks, the walls come out at angles, and on top are enormous capstones. So it's something that's not was not built very easily. And they're in the area, and uh, when I started my research, there was about a 100 and something of these chambers, and only 60 of them left because they're being destroyed because of development in the area. No one really knows where they came from, but um, I actually did a lot of research on to that, about them, and um, that's, you know, my book, Celtic Mysteries, Doorways to Another Dimension in America's Northeast. I think that's what it's called now. I don't know. But there's a definite connection between these stone structures and the UFOs and paranormal phenomena. You know, just about everybody that goes up to these things with digital cameras, I mean, everybody comes back with pictures of globes of light and and everything like that. People go in and, and experience, um, you know, strange feelings and unusual feelings and, and so on. These things, they date back probably to thousands of years ago. And they represent some type of um, exploration by people probably who came from Europe into the United States. But you see, these structures are not built randomly. They're built over areas of magnetic anomalies. And I found these structures and started doing research because I realized that the Hudson Valley UFO and all the cases that took place, not only the UFOs that were spotted overhead, but also cases of high strangeness, people who had unusual experience with apparitions, ghosts, abductions, you know, that, that was a whole different, you know, uh, um, spectrum of the Hudson Valley case, something Alan Heidek didn't really want to touch, so we left it aside until I got into it later. And I plotted the UFO sightings 
of the Hudson Valley. And the UFO that passed overhead that was seen by a lot of people, mm-hmm. that had a basic pattern with its um, epicenter in Kent Cliffs, New York. That was the first and last of, of a lot of the reports. Also, these cases of high strangeness I was able to plot on a map, but I noticed that they weren't spread over the entire area stretching from Massachusetts to New Jersey and Connecticut and so on. They were concentrated in clusters around certain areas in Putnam County, New York, and Westchester County, New York. And it was interesting to note that the center of these high strangeness cases also seem to be the epicenter or the focus point, the focal point of the Hudson Valley UFO cases. So the next thing was I had to do, I put a team together and we went out to these clustered areas of high strangeness to see what we can find, if anything. The first location we went to in Kent Cliffs, New York, I found a carved standing stone that looked very bizarre and out of place for the area. And I found one of these stone chambers. I said, well, that's interesting. Went to the second location, the same thing. The third location, a stone chamber. And I said, this has got to be more than a coincidence. Come on. The correlation between unusual paranormal UFO phenomena and the locations of these chambers. These chambers were not randomly built. Later on, when we did studies, magnetic anomaly studies with a magnetometer, we made graphs and everything, you know, and we found out that these chamber locations, these standing stones and these stone chambers, were built on areas of intense magnetic anomalies. The correlation is that, was it a coincidence that these chambers were clustered around the same areas where there was an unusual high amount of reported paranormal phenomena and the apex or the focal point of the Hudson Valley UFO. Hmm. So the fact is, is that people still have sightings and encounters around these chambers. Let's look at it from a different point of view. To a people of, of a long time ago, people a long time ago, perhaps their religion was based on, or part of their religion was based on spirits and gods who came from another universe or so on. Sure. And, you know, that could be represented by sightings of UFOs today. So let's say UFOs and paranormal phenomena come here from a parallel reality, sort of like another bend or corner of the universe that wraps around us. And at certain locations, at certain times, or for whatever reason, these areas sort of like bend a little bit, allowing the our reality and another reality to merge together so that we can witness what's in this reality and what's in that reality can also come into our reality. Now, the magnetic anomalies in the area are naturally caused by the deposits of magnetite, but they seem to be almost intensified in areas where these stone chambers are located. Why? Well, I took the data to a physicist down at the Lamont Dougherty Observatory and they couldn't figure it out, what the data represented. It was something that they just say, well, there could be an enormous sphere of magnetite buried 12 feet beneath the chamber to cause this magnetic distortion. I don't know, I don't think so. I think it's something else. We're talking about the idea of ley lines 
passing through these magnetic areas and twisting into nodes, causing an actual distortion of the space-time continuum. Well, now, who built these chambers? That's a good question. There is some evidence that I found and other researchers have found that they could have been built by Phoenician and later on Celtic explorers who came here possibly with a Druid priest. Now, the Druids believed that there was another world close to ours, and at certain times of the year, that world can merge with ours, and it's possible for these spirits who live in this world to come into our world, but it was very dangerous for us to go into theirs. They said this happened at a certain time of the year, and they marked it as the end of their calendar. Today, we still celebrate that particular day as Halloween. So... The thing is, is that these chambers, these stone chambers, have been sitting in the area for since before colonial days. And no one really knows who built them exactly. But we did find some evidence to indicate that they were built possibly by European explorers who came here as far back as about 1500 B.C. So... But the connection between these locations and the UFOs, I mean, to me, it can't be denied. I mean, it's there. Right. I found them by accident. So, An interesting thing is that Alan Hynek, before I even dealt with the chambers, Alan Hynek said to me, uh, we were talking about the Hudson Valley UFO, and I asked him his opinion, why all of a sudden have these UFOs appeared in this area in a great number, a massive number of sightings. He, you know, very quietly puffed on his pipe and looked at me and he said, windows, look for windows. And I believe that someone a long time ago may have marked the locations of these windows to what Alan Hynek called a parallel reality. All right, now this is all interesting, but I have to ask you a couple of questions. I think are important. Right ahead. All right, you say you found evidence that makes you think that maybe these stone structures were related to uh, very old European explorers that came over, and you you quoted the time period of 1500 BC. All right, what things did you find about these structures that would equate them to those people? Okay, well, first of all, the architecture is a uh, is an indication. It, it's, it, it's, it's an artifact. The walls of these structures go up on angles. It's a process called corbelling, which was primarily used by the, uh, the Celts, you know, uh, the Celts in northern Europe and in England about 300, 400 B.C. And these enormous capstones placed on top, it's the same type of process. Now, on each particular chamber, the number of capstones is usually seven, okay? And this was also a magical number to the Celts. Right, right, yeah. Okay, now, another thing is that I found on one of the chambers markings. There was a limestone uh, cone-shaped rock, which I found in two separate chambers that had markings on it. And I recognized those markings. And the markings... And I show it in my lecture when I give the, the lecture on the, the chambers. I show the markings that I found on the stone and a picture that I took of M45, the Pleiades. Whoever was trying to mark that rock was trying to represent the star cluster, the seven sisters, the Pleiades. I'll tell you what, let's look at the stars in a moment. 
Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. So, what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. The stars are on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our star of the week, Phil Ambrogno, an expert on the Hudson Valley UFO phenomena and all the other paranormal stuff that's going on around it. Okay, so tell us more. Now, the Druids believed that when the Pleiades was directly overhead at midnight, it marked the time where these two universes, these two parallel realities, overlapped. And it was obviously that somebody in this particular chamber, that we call the cathedral chamber because it has a very high ceiling, was trying to mark the Pleiades. And, of course, you know, that time of the year that the Druid priests believed that these universes overlapped, we still celebrate it as Halloween. It was the end of the Celtic year. Now, also, on the bottom of that stone were markings. And the markings was sort of like a script. It was sort of weathered quite a bit, but you could still make them out. And it resembled a writing called Olga, which is a script type of writing which was used by the Celts. It was one of the first written writings, sort of like a Morse code. But, you know, these chambers still puzzle me because they may have been built a very long time ago. And... In one particular chamber, I wondered why 
somebody would build this enormous stone structure with all these massive stones and have a dirt floor. Well, the dirt accumulated for many years in there. I dug down into the dirt, of course, with help, going through roots and everything else, and came to a stone floor in every chamber that I built. There were mm. slabs. Okay, So you can get an idea of when those stone slabs were placed there with the dirt on top of it. The soil horizons went up about 13 inches. It was that high. Hmm. So we dug around and said, gee, you know, this brings us back about, you know, about 2,000, 3,000 years ago with the dirt settling in here. So we lifted up the stone, the slab of the stone. We started digging again. Of course, we had a different soil horizon. We wondered why the um, whoever built these things did a magnificent job with the stones, but they left the dirt floor. The thing is, the fact is, they did not have a dirt floor originally. The dirt settled in after many, many years. So we dug down about 12, 13, 14 inches in some areas, and we hit a stone floor. That 13 inches of soil represents going back a couple of thousand years. So we got to the stone floor in one particular area. We lifted up the stone slab, which used to be the floor of this chamber. Mm -hmm. And we hit an entirely new, different soil horizon. It had more of a humus contact, a more uh, contact, so more organic composure to it. And we said, well, you know, started digging into that soil. And it went down about, we went down about six inches, only six inches and hit yellow clay. Now, for that particular area up in New York, when you hit that yellow clay, when you dig down, you're at the time of the last, the end of the last glacial age, which was 18,000 years ago. Hmm. So, if I'm reading my soil horizons correctly, these chambers were built somewhere around 9,000 B.C., Jeez. How could that be? Quick question about the stones that make up these chambers, Phil. Are these stones that are indigenous to the area? Was this stuff quarried locally? Oh, yeah. You could actually see in some of the areas where they were cut out of the bedrock. Okay. And the chambers are built primarily of two types of stone, quartz or quartzite and granite, and fine quartz granites. And um, that seems to be the the majority of the chamber's constructions. And these chambers, by the way, were not built in one particular time frame. They are in different states of decay, and they're slightly different designs. They were built over, I, can, I think, a very long period of time, so long that the people who built the last series of chambers probably didn't even know who built the first ones there. But I do think that the, um, the last chambers to be constructed in the area were actually built around 500 A.D. And I believe that they were built by Irish Christians, and they're found in Connecticut. Mm. And the evidence for this is that um, outside the chamber scratched in a rock was, you know, three Kairos, which was the Byzantine way of writing the name of Jesus Christ back around 500, 600 A.D., so they were probably the last chambers built. But these very early chambers in Westchester and Putnam County, they may date back a very, very long time. They may be as old as Stonehenge. And they, now, may, be, they may be old as old as the pyramids. 
But now here's the thing, Phil. We're talking about an area where Native Americans lived. It's true. For presumably thousands of years, right? True. All right. So is there any anecdotal evidence in Native American culture that in any way sheds any light on these things? Absolutely. During my research into these stone chambers, I came across an Algonquin uh, medicine man who was the last of his kind. He was about 104 years old. I don't even know how old he was. Jeez. And primarily, I went to go see him about the stones in the area. And I sat down with him, and I was only going to spend a couple of hours there, and I, spend it, and I ended up spending two weeks with the guy. <laughs> and when I sat down, he was so fascinating. The first thing he said to me, before I tell you anything, do you believe in the old ways? Of course, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you must ask me questions. He said, because I'm not going to be around very much longer. So you have to ask the questions, and I will give you the answers. So I asked him, of course, I started asking him about the stone chambers. And he said that the stone chambers were built a very long time ago. And the things that he was saying was quite interesting. He would say, long before the trees remember. And because all the trees in the area, you see, have been growing around there since the 1600s. Before that time, in that part of Putnam in Westchester County, it was mostly all bush. The trees were later brought in and grown because uh, around the, some of the trees down there are recent. Some of the, some of the tree areas and the forest areas are recent. I saw a number of pictures that that dated back to 1906, showing a chamber in a field, and that same chamber today is located in a forest with trees. Wow. Yes, so, you know, there weren't that many trees. He says they were built by people who came across the ocean 18 to a ship. And he said their faces were as fire. They had red beards. And he said their eyes were of the sky. Blue eyes. Blue eyes. Sounds like Vikings. And he said they were, they looked like animals. They had furs. And he said they had horns coming out of their heads. Now, remember, this is a tradition and a saying that was passed down from medicine man to medicine man. Right. To make a very long story short, if we could talk to him, he said that his people would watch the people who built the chambers. They built the chambers, and they would watch magical things happen there as they called the spirits from the other world. Hmm. After they disappeared... These areas where the chambers were, were considered sacred ground. And you had to be a powerful medicine man or a sachem, a high chief, in order just to walk into those areas without the spirits bothering you. And so, yes, the Native Americans in the area do have legends of the people who built the chambers. But it happened so long ago, he couldn't give me a date on when it happened, but it happened very, very long ago. It was one of the first legends that they have of the people who built the stone chambers. And what he described from the Indian folklore and what was passed on and what they saw and what his predecessors heard that his people saw a long time ago sound like aspects of the UFO phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And today, you can go into these chambered areas and still have these experiences. People report encounters with something 
around these chambers, whether it be UFOs, globes of light, apparitions, ghosts, whatever you want to call them. Right. Strange electromagnetic phenomena and so on. Well, but is that a, a, a direct result of the magnetic properties of whatever lays underneath, whatever's underneath of these things, sort of clouding people's perceptions? I think this is where I, probably some of our audience listening to this is going, hmm, you know, it's kind of like the effect that RF uh, noise has on people's perceptions. It changes the way they feel. Are we talking potentially about a similar thing here? Definitely. I, I don't know for sure. You see, this is hmm. why I'm still doing research. But, yes, if you go into these areas, by the way, some people feel nauseous. Some people feel dizzy. Yeah. People have gone into the area and claimed to have visions. Mm-hmm. Okay? And now, you see... I really publicize these chambers, and 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 because of their paranormal connection, okay, probably did archaeologists won't touch them in the area. But the thing is, is that Connecticut in New York has a very very high Wicca community, right. pagan community, because. I wrote about these things in the papers and magazines and so on. It was one of my stories was published in New York Daily News about the chambers. And they go there and they have, you know, meditation and they have all these experiences and they do rituals out there now. And, you know, they, they claim to have all these incredible otherworldly experiences there, whether or not it's fabricated or whether or not it's delusional. I don't know how much of it is or not, but I do know that people can go out there and experience strange sensations and people can go out there with digital cameras and produce globes of light and strange energy orbs and things like that that weren't visible. Uh, some people go out there and they start feeling very nauseous. And But one of the most bizarre things is that, you know, women who go out there and they're close to that time of the month have, you know, what? So... <laughs> I mean, it happens all the time. Hey, you know, so, we're near being out of time here, Phil. And I know the stories are just beginning, getting more and more interesting. And our top-tier guests, of which you are one, that means that we have to have you back on to talk more about it. Give me a brief summary of the new book that's coming out in August so we can give it a big send-off. Yeah, my new book is called The Interdimensional Universe, The New Science of UFOs and uh, Paranormal Phenomena and Other Strange Beings. Basically, it takes the reader into the early aspects of my UFO research, into uh, how I've changed my ideas, and into uh, the idea that the uh, overlapping multifaceted universe may, in fact, be responsible for paranormal phenomena and what we're seeing and reporting as paranormal and UFO activity. We, know we, we may be getting a glimpse of an unseen universe that is enveloped around us. So it's kind of like a multi-thing sort of thing. Yeah, fascinating. Who's publishing it? Blue Ellen published all my books except for the original Night Siege, which was published by Random House. Okay. By the way, just to just know for our listeners, uh, Gene and Phil, uh, there's a good chunk of the Night Siege book that is actually on Google Books. So it's not the whole book, Phil, but there's a bunch of it. There's probably, I don't know, four or five full chapters online. Holy moly. And, uh, yeah, I'm, oh yeah, that's great. I don't think that Lou Allen, who's the publisher, that would be very happy about that. Well, uh, 
Let them go up against Google. They have very deep But you, you can get the real book, you know, on Amazon.com with my right, other right. ones also. Just for our listeners, you know, if you want to see what Phil's doing, you can get a taste on uh, Google Book Search. It's certainly a... Interesting point for the listenership of the Paracast. Phil, if anyone wants to get in touch with you to learn more about the things you do, is there an address or website or someplace they could look for? No, I don't have a website, but, uh, you know, I, I accept emails, and I'm always interested to hear people's experiences and what's going on in their lives and their relationship to the entire UFO thing and their experiences. I'm always looking for people who have extraordinary evidence you know phil please share that email address with our listeners yes i'm always interested in getting interested information people have experiences my email is uh, b as in boy e as in edward l 1313 at yahoo.com you have an experience out there i would love to hear from you give that address one more time Bell 1313 at yahoo that's bell with one l not two l's it's bell the sun god not bell to bell that you ring. Okay. Or you want to ring the sun god with one L. Yes. B-E-L. Bell. Sounds good to me. Phil Ambrogno, thank you so much for joining us this week on The Paracast. Likewise. Thank you, Phil. You're welcome. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 